from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Mark Moran, August 5, 2013. Mark is a Baha'i and a web graphic designer. He describes his spiritual journey that includes his study of Wushu and his work with the actor Jet Li. Mark had several opportunities to live in China and describes his time there. I started the interview by asking Mark where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Oh, well, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Well, technically, I actually uh, spent the first couple years of my life in uh, Japan when I was a baby, but I don't really remember that. So uh, Seattle up until I was about 24, and it was nice growing up there. You know, it's uh, it's rainy, but when you grow up in that environment, you don't mind it too much, and you kind of uh, appreciate the greenness of the environment. So it was nice growing up in Seattle. And why were your parents in Japan? Uh, well, my mother is from Japan. I'm half Japanese. My father met her when he was an exchange student in Tokyo, and uh, they got married there. And my sister was born in Seattle, and then five years later, I was born. At one point, they went back to Japan to pursue some work and to do some things over there. But my understanding is that my father at the time was working for an airline, uh, and my mom, I think, just wanted to go back for a while to spend some time there and also to kind of let us become acclimated to that environment so that we kind of knew sort of where we came from. So we were there for about two or three years, and then we came back to Seattle. And at that time, my parents uh, got divorced. And you mentioned airline. He was looking for an airline, like he's a pilot or something? or Yeah, he was a flight attendant for Northwest Airlines. At that time, it was Northwest Orient, and now they're, uh, they got acquired by Delta, so it's Delta Airlines, although he doesn't work there now. He's retired. What was spiritual life like growing up? Uh, you know, there wasn't necessarily any strong spiritual component when I was growing up. After my parents were divorced, my father then found out about the Baha'i faith when I was about five or six. And so he sort of investigated that uh, outside of my sort of sphere of influence. And my mom, I think after she got remarried, she decided to sort of uh, do some investigation. So she became, uh, she joined a Unitarian church in Seattle. So my early memories of sort of a spiritual life were attending summer, uh, like uh, Sunday morning classes at a Unitarian church, and then occasionally going with my father to a fireside meeting, which is where the people who are interested in the Baha'i faith go to find out more information about the Baha'i faith. So uh, it was this sort of like uh, two sides of spiritual life, I guess, but I wasn't necessarily heavily involved in either one at that time. That And that would take you up to high school and yeah. through high school? Yeah, prob- well, not that far. No, this is more like uh, six years old to maybe 10 years old or so. And after my father declared as a Baha'i, uh, became a Baha'i in probably I was around uh, seven or eight years old, he started taking us to feasts, which are this monthly, every 19 days, Baha'is have a spiritual gathering for the community called a feast. And he would take my sister and I to those, and we would... Uh, participate in like the children's classes sometimes or uh, some activities at the feast or to get to know other uh, ch- Baha'i children. 
And then when I became older, when I was in junior high, he would take me to a Sunday class, a Baha'i class, at the local community college where they held it. Not part of the community college, but it was a class held at that location. I would hang out with other sort of junior youth type aged people, like uh, pre-15 years old aged youth. At that time, I wasn't that serious about learning about spiritual things. So I wasn't that attentive necessarily. I wasn't really the best uh, role model or the best student. And most of my time there, I was spent just kind of socializing. I just wanted to have an opportunity to hang out with people and make friends. But during the class, they would still try to, you know, teach us and talk to us about spiritual topics or about uh, equality of men and women or the oneness of mankind or elimination of prejudice. And these were all topics I agreed with. There nothing that they said I necessarily thought was incorrect or wrong. So I didn't really have a, any feeling that I needed to, to discuss something that at that time to me seemed pretty obvious. But at this point, you had not identified yourself as a Baha'i. No, no. I think it wasn't until maybe around the age of 13, 12 or 13, my father took me to a summer school in eastern Washington. And it was a Baha'i summer school. And in the process of being there, when a person decides they, they have a connection to Baha'u'llah, who's the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, and they decide that they want to become a Baha'i, they do what is called declaring. They declare that they're a Baha'i. They declare that they believe in this religion. So the process of declaring usually takes place after the age of 15, which is when Baha'is consider a person is an adult or take on the responsibility of being an adult in, in society. But at the age of 13, I was, I was given the the choice or the opportunity to, to sort of pre-declare, which is I had, didn't realize was an option at the time. And uh, they said, well, you can declare early, and then when you become 15, you'll be automatically, you'll kind of be integrated into the Baha'i community. And I think in hindsight, that was probably a little premature, and I think I understand the reason why they wait until people are 15 generally. Uh, but at the time, I, you know, I had some friends who were doing it, and I was like, well, you know, I believe this stuff, and it makes sense to me. So yeah, I'll... I'll sign my declaration card, which is a piece of paper where you sign your intention to become a Baha'i at 15. And so I, I signed it at 13. And, and I think that's about the age I started to identify myself as a Baha'i, but not necessarily understanding what that meant or what the responsibilities of a Baha'i was or what the requirements were for being a Baha'i, sort of the, the laws of the Baha'i faith. I had a general understanding, but I think my feeling at that time wasn't not my feeling. I think my understanding wasn't quite up to speed. I was only 13 at the time. When I was 15, I, I became sort of involved more into the Baha'i community, and I started uh, being a little more active as a Baha'i in the community as well. So you'd say that you were confirmed into the Baha'i faith when you were 15, spiritually speaking. Yeah, well, at the age of 15, I, I went on a summer, let's see, this is 1985, and that summer, they had a youth conference in Columbus, Ohio. And I was in Seattle, but a lot of other youth about my age, a little younger, a little older, were going to rent a bunch of vans and do a caravan across the country to Ohio to participate in this youth conference. And I happened to be at a, a feast, a feast gathering in Seattle, a few months before this happened. At that time, a youth mentioned this was going to happen. And something in me just kind of said, you know, I really want to be a involved in that. And I didn't really have a 
particular reason. And looking back at it, I have no idea why I, I thought this would be something I'd want to do, but something about it just appealed to me, I guess. Maybe I always wanted to get away from my parents. I'm not really sure what the reason was, but I felt this inclination to go. So I, I asked my dad if it'd be possible to go, and he said sure. And at that, that summer, I think I was planning on staying with him. And so I uh, made the arrangements, and I signed up, and I and, and this sort of trip across the country with these youth really, I think, was one of my first experiences really becoming sort of, you, you know, when you, a lot of people, when they are involved in a, a religious practice or a religious community, what really sort of cements their involvement or cements their relationship is, sure, it's the, the religious doctrine or, or the belief system or the teachings, but it's also the social community, the, the people that they meet, the people that they become friends with. That's really what has a strong impact on a lot of people. And I think that particular summer uh, is what really sort of helped me become more involved and more attached to the community of Baha'is, especially Baha'is of my age group at that time. I was 15. So, you know, making friends that have a, a sense of, not righteousness, but a sense of propriety, a sense of social responsibility or a consciousness to be better people and to help society, to create a better civilization for everyone this sort of thing really appealed to me and i and i enjoyed having this sort of community of peers to talk to and to be around because previous to that you know in, in my normal high school uh, people weren't that involved in trying to be better people or just trying to help other people or, or being of service to anyone and so i i think that i really gravitated towards that reality with those people so you kept that with you when you came back from that youth conference yeah, I mean, actually, that it was really, <laughs> it was not easy going across the country with a bunch of youth at, back in 1985. So when I came back, I kind of needed a little time to, to decompress. But it definitely uh, helped me be very, um, sort of feel connected to them. And and from that point on, I became much more involved in the in activities. I joined the district youth committee, which back in the 80s, the Baha'i Faith, they had these sort of youth committee, regional youth committee, these sort of groups of, of youth that were, were given responsibility for helping organize events and activities for youth in that region. So I was in the Western Washington District Youth Committee. And basically, the community in, within the Baha'i Faith has, has evolved a lot, especially socially, about how we work with each other and how we teach the Baha'i Faith and how we explore our sort of spiritual reality and how we, how we communicate that. So back in the 80s, we're still sort of learning the process. And so we didn't focus as much as we probably should have on service and on teaching and on helping people and on understanding the writings of the Baha'i faith. I think a lot of it was more socially based. So we'd have a lot of spaghetti dinners and uh, <laughs> uh, sleepovers at, at, at houses. And, and we would do some studying and things of that nature. But I think at that time and at my age, I was, I was more interested in the social aspect. But as a result of being involved in the social aspect, I was still exposed to the spiritual aspects as well and and that had an effect on me that still resonated within me so that even though I wasn't you know committing my full attention and resources to the spiritual reality I was still being affected by it in in a positive way which you know continued to affect me for many years uh, from that point forward and what was your mother's reaction to you becoming a bahai you know at first i think she didn't quite understand it it's interesting i at that time between 13 and 15, when I had kind of pre-declared, I, I mentioned to her at one point that I had become a Baha'i, and she seemed surprised. Like, oh, well, 
Why didn't you talk to me about this? And and she's never, uh, she knows about the Baha'i faith, and, and she's, but she's never felt personally that that's something that she wants to pursue. But I think over the course of our lives and over the course of since we were children and growing up and having this influence of the Baha'i faith around us, she's seen the positive effect that it's had in our lives and sort of the spiritual grounding that it's given us. And she's seen what other children who don't have necessarily the same sort of spiritual focus or they don't, they don't have the same upbringing or the same influences, how they've turned out and how we've turned out. And so she, I think at this point, and she said this to me, that she's really appreciative of the influence of the, that the Baha'i faith has had in our lives because it's, she feels that it's, it's helped us become better people in the, in the long run. What did you do after high school? Yeah, so after high school, I went to college. I went to Western Washington University, and I was studying design. Well, I was studying indecision, really. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I wanted to study design and the Japanese. And, and at the university, there was a Baha'i club there. Uh, but I wasn't as involved as I probably could have or should have been. And it was after about two years of college uh, that I sort of realized I didn't really know what I was doing and I didn't really have a, a necessarily a good grasp on uh, what I wanted to do with my career. And I felt like I was sort of wasting money and it was affecting my grades and affecting my attendance and classes. And so I decided to take some time off to sort of reevaluate what it is I wanted to do in the future. So I took some time off and during that time off, I attended some uh, Baha'i activities. In Oregon, there was a spiritualization institute, which is basically a very intense nine-day course of study where you spend all day just studying the writings of Baha'u'llah, who's the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. And you you just really get in-depth with every syllable, every word, every phrase. And that type of study really had a profound effect on me at that time. It really made me sort of in fact, one of my one of my friends said, you know, over the course of these nine days, it seems like you've actually changed a lot. And he said, when I first went to the nine-day thing, I was sort of a little flighty and I had a lot of energy and I was sort of all over the place. But after the nine days, he could see that my temperament calmed down and that I became more relaxed and I became more comfortable and it seemed much more calm as a result of, of the sort of intense study. And that was interesting to me because I didn't necessarily perceive that in myself, but he saw that. Uh, happening to me. And so uh, it sort of made me realize that this sort of uh, deep involvement of this in studying the Baha'i faith or the, this deep involvement in, in being in that sort of environment is really beneficial to me. There was forming a, a teaching team at that time in Western Washington. And basically a teaching team is where a bunch of youth or a bunch of people will get together and sort of dedicate a period of their life, a half a year or a year, to traveling around the community in certain areas and just providing service either to the Baha'is or to the community community in general, teaching children's classes, doing whatever is required of them to help out. So basically this, this human resource development was this teaching team. And so I, I decided to join this teaching team and I joined it for six months and we traveled all around Western Washington and uh, helping with different uh, activities, different teaching events in the, within the Baha'i faith or, or, or even just general like helping clean up a park or helping to go to an old folks home and, and help people in the convalescent center, things like that. So sort of this deep involvement in, in helping people. And I think that also sort of had a profound effect because it was also during this period of time where I had a lot more involvement with the arts in the Baha'i faith. And so I started to learn guitar. I played piano before, but then I started to sing a lot more, play more guitar 
and become more involved in sort of uh, some of the the people who are trying to write music and things like that. And, and that sort of appealed to me as well because I always consider myself somewhat artistically inclined. So I really enjoyed that process too. Sort of this combination of the arts, which also kind of have a spiritual component to them. You know, they speak to people spiritually and also combine that with teaching and being this spiritual environment. I think those things together really uh, had an impact. After that teaching experience, it's, it's interesting. I, I sort of had a, a period of time where I was, was trying to understand myself better. I think a lot of people go through this in their early 20s where they're sort of trying to uh, understand what their calling is or what it is they're trying to do. Not necessarily spiritually because I had a, a pretty decent grasp on who I was in that in that area, but maybe more on practical level, like what I wanted to do professionally or how I was going to make a living or uh, where I wanted to live. And so I sort of tried to figure that out for myself for a while. And at one point, I became really enamored with Chinese martial arts. When I was in Japan for a few summers, I saw this Jackie Chan movie. And at that time, nobody knew who Jackie Chan was. But I watched this movie, and I was enthralled. And I, I really want to learn that kind of stuff. And then a couple years later, 1994, I believe, I saw a Jet Li movie, who's another action uh, kung fu actor. And I saw his movie, and I was like, OK, whatever he's doing, that's what I really want to learn. And so I looked all around Seattle for what I discovered the term was wushu, which means martial arts in Chinese. And so I looked all around Seattle for a wushu school. And at that time, there was none. There is now, but at that time, there weren't any. So I decided, well, okay, I really want to sort of branch out on my own and kind of know who I am a little better. And at the same time, I'd like to investigate and find a wushu place. So I decided at that moment or at that time that I would move to San Francisco. So about three to six months, I saved up some money, I got a train ticket, and I headed to San Francisco, and I found a place to live, and found a job temping at a law firm, and I just sort of went off on my own without really much preparation or thought, which I guess at that age you can do and not have too many bad repercussions. And as fate would have it, I found a wushu school in, in San Francisco with a really good teacher. And so I started really devoting myself heavily to the practice of martial arts and being really invested in that community of people who do martial arts. And and I think to some degree, when I was new to the San Francisco area, I didn't really make a strong enough effort to connect with the Baha'is there uh, when I moved there. And so there, there's a period of time where I was, was not as active or involved in the Baha'i faith after I moved to San Francisco. And I think study of the mar studying martial arts and studying Wushu sort of replaced sort of that, that spiritual aspect for me to some degree. And I, I focused a lot on, on that and sort of the philosophy of martial arts. And I sort of combined my own, you know, my Baha'i beliefs into the my study of the martial arts as well, because there's a lot of correlation between the two. There's a lot of martial arts are often based off of a Buddhist ideas and philosophy. And so, you know, all religious traditions essentially have a lot of the same truths to them. And so I, I found a lot of complementary philosophies or beliefs with martial arts. And so I was training in martial arts, and wushu is a sport martial art. It's not really one of those internal or traditional styles, so it's much more of a sport-based type of thing. And I got really involved in that for quite a while. And then uh, around 1997, when I was 27, I discovered the internet, and I discovered the web, and I started to teach myself web design. In the process of, of learning uh, web design, I submitted a site I had made to a friend of mine who was a wushu person, uh, from UC Berkeley, and he had started a web design company with some friends, and they were 
uh, a service-based company. They were doing web design for clients. And so I sent him my, my website and said, hey, could you take a look and tell me what you think and if you think I need to improve or how I can get better. And he wrote me back and said, well, actually, you know, if you're interested, uh, we could hire you as a producer and you could come to work for us and, and kind of learn some things. But we're just starting off as a company, so we can't pay a lot. So it was only about $600 a month. But fortunately, at that time, my rent was extremely cheap. I was living in Chinatown in Oakland, so I had almost no rent. So I could take that hit at that time. So I started to work for them as a producer, and I learned a lot about web development. At the same time, I was really involved in Wushu as a sport because all the people in that web design company were Wushu people. At the same time, I had a really good friend named Ala Moshiri, who was at that time studying at UC Berkeley. And he was, to be honest, I think he was sort of my core spiritual component at that period of time. I was sort of going through a lot of challenges personally. And he was sort of the person I would hang out with to sort of reconnect with my spiritual roots and kind of my spiritual uh, foundation. So I kind of owe a lot to him because he sort of helped me stay a little, stay grounded during that period of time when I was sort of all over the place trying to figure out who I was. When I was working at this uh, design firm, uh, we started doing a lot of work for entertainment clients like Disney Channel, uh, Warner Brothers, ABC.com, RKO Pictures, uh, different companies like this. And one of the clients we ended up getting was Jet Li, who was the actor that got me interested in, in Wushu in the first place. And as fate would have it, I ended up being the person in charge of his official website that we were maintaining and running for him. I was extremely excited and happy about that. He was in LA at the time. I was in Berkeley working. And at the same time, one of our people working at the company, Sen, uh, created a, an idea that he had. He, he went off for a year to sort of cultivate this idea for a website he had called Rotten Tomatoes. And so he created this website about the aggregation of movie reviews to sort of give an easy idea for people to understand what kind of movie they want to see. And so he made this website called Rotten Tomatoes. And then about a year later, he came back. And as a company, we decided that we would switch from being a service company to working on Rotten Tomatoes and building it up as a brand and as a website. Unfortunately, that doesn't actually pay as much money as it does to make websites for clients. And so they had to let a lot of people go, including myself. They also had to let the project go of working on Jet Li's website. Coincidentally, I just happened to be going to Los Angeles at that time, and I had a meeting with Jet. And so I, I proposed to him, I said, that they're not able to work on your website anymore, and I no longer have a job, so why don't you just hire me to come to LA and I'll just work for you directly and work on your website. And at that time, he was very interested in his website, more so than he is now. So he said, okay. And I was very excited. I got to move to LA. For three years, I worked for Jet Li directly out of his house working on his website. It's interesting because at this point in time, I was, I had sort of gone away from the Baha'i faith, influence of the Baha'i faith. I wasn't that involved in the community much at all. But as a result of working for him, he's a very devout Buddhist, uh, Tibetan Buddhist. He's Chinese, but he follows Tibetan Buddhism. He talks about it quite a bit. He's very active with prayer, he prays and meditates constantly, and he's always talking about Buddhism and about Buddhist teachings. And so I think it's actually as a result of working for him and being under that sort of influence of this sort of constant spirituality that he's trying to cultivate in himself and those people around him that I started to think more about my own beliefs and actually having conversations with him about Buddhism and about uh, the reality of the world and who we are and all of these things uh, made me sort of think more about my own beliefs and, and what I believed in. Uh, actually, I can almost attribute coming back and being more involved in the Baha'i faith as a result of 
working for him, who happens to be a Buddhist, which is kind of strange, I guess, in a way, but, you know, all spiritual truths are essentially similar, so it all worked out. So I became a little more involved in the in the Baha'i faith when I was in L.A. I happened to move to a community in the Los Angeles area that uh, only had eight adult Baha'is, and in the Baha'i faith, if a, a Baha'i community, when a Baha'i community has nine Baha'is, then they're able to form a local spiritual assembly, or an LSA, uh, which is sort of the, the local, not they're not clergy, there's no clergy in the Baha'i faith, but they're, they're the people who sort of help with the administrative tasks of the community and help maintain some order for the community and help progress uh, the needs of the community forward. And so I happened to be able to join this LSA in this community. And that was actually a real eye-opener for me, because I'd never been on an LSA before. And it was uh, really helped me sort of get a better perspective on the responsibilities of what it means to be a Baha'i. Nothing is black and white. There's lots of shades of gray to everything. And you don't have to wait until you're the perfect Baha'i or the perfect Christian or the perfect Buddhist in order to be involved in that community. There, there are different levels of involvement and there's different levels of progress for, man, for a human being. And so I realized that even if I feel like I don't necessarily live up to the standards of what it means to be a Baha'i, and the Baha'i faith has pretty high standards of, of how you act. There's no drinking. There's no, you're not really supposed to smoke. A lot of things that current modern Western society says is okay is not necessarily okay for within the Baha'i faith. I felt like this experience of being on this LA, LSA gave me a, a sorry, I think a more well-rounded perspective on what it means to be a Baha'i. And I felt more inclined to kind of come back into the Baha'i faith and be more involved in and things. But it was just around this time that I actually ended up moving back to San Francisco. So in 2005, Jet moved back to China. And so I moved back to the Bay Area and I started working at Rotten Tomatoes again. And I was there for about uh, a year until we sold the company. As a result of selling the company, I had some money. And so I decided I wanted to go abroad. I wanted to sort of expand my horizons. I'd always wanted to live abroad and I always wanted to live in Japan. Um, so I started making this progress towards studying Japanese in Japan at that time, but while I was making those preparations, uh, Jet contacted me and said that he would like me to work for him in Shanghai to develop a website for one of his films. And so I took that opportunity because I knew uh, within the Baha'i faith, there's a, uh, there was a lot of encouragement for Baha'is to go to China to sort of help uh, society and help promote spiritual ideas and sort of help cultivate this sort of sense of the oneness of community and humanity within China and to help the local Chinese people with their sort of social development projects. And so I, I took that opportunity and I went to China and I lived in Shanghai for two years and I was working for JET for two years when I was there. And that was also a nice opportunity because I was able to also continue and maintain my practice of Wushu while I was in Shanghai. So I was training with the Shanghai Wushu team, which is a professional martial arts team, while I was working for JET Li on this design work. And also I was able to sort of help with some of the local community service activities there. So do you have any stories that reflect your perspective or take on Chinese society when you were there? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. The Chinese society is really different than American society. And I thought coming from a perspective of being half Japanese, where I had this sort of Japanese cultural perspective, that it would help me by going, when I went to China. And I had been to China a few times before. But I didn't realize just how different Chinese and Japanese culture are. You know, the, both places are extremely overpopulated. There's a huge population density in both areas. But both cultures deal with that situation very differently. 
Yeah, I mean, this is my perspective. So it it, might, it may or may not be completely accurate. I mean, if you talk to a cultural anthropologist, they may say I'm completely off my rocker. But for me, I felt like in, in Japan, the way they deal with this extreme uh, population is that they don't necessarily ignore the people they don't know, but they they acknowledge them, but not in a way that directly interacts with them. So they, they're cognizant that there's a person, let's say, walking down the street next to them, but they don't go out of their way to necessarily interact with that person, and they don't really talk to them because they're not part of their you know social sphere. They don't know that person, but they still recognize that that person's there, and they might make way for them a little bit. But in China, it's it's very different. When when they see someone, when there's somebody there that they don't know, then it's essentially the same as that person is not there. And so, you have situations where people cut in line at a restaurant or in line for something, not because they're being rude, and it's not considered rude necessarily, but it's because in their kind of sphere of acknowledgement that no one else is there. It's just them and whoever else they happen to know or happen to need to know at that moment. And this was really hard for me to get used to. I think what, what it came down to is I, I came to really appreciate through my time in China, and I was there for about eight years total. I was there two years in Shanghai, two years in Hong Kong, and then two, uh, four, four years in Xi'an. And I think that whole process, what it made me really appreciate was the the power of education and the power of using and the importance of using education to sort of promote not knowledge per se but an understanding and an ability to think creatively and to anticipate solutions to problems and i think this is really the power of education is that it can be used not just for the acquisition of knowledge but for development of of spiritual qualities and the understanding of, of social issues and being used to solve those issues or those problems as they may come up. I would say that the main issue within China is that there's a lot of education, but there's the education that's knowledge-based. There's a lot of knowledge about things. They understand how to do a lot of things. That's why so much outsourcing is being done in China. That's why there's so much development in China. It's because they have a lot of information and they have a lot of human resources to develop the results of that information. But where I see it sort of needing to be further developed in China is the spiritual aspect of education, education of morals, education of virtues, education of understanding a person's responsibility to other members of society, not just people you're related to or that you're classmates with or that you work with, but also people who are who you don't know, people who are just people around you that you have no direct connection with, but you still have a social obligation or social responsibility to think of everyone's welfare. And I think this side of education can still be developed further in China. And it, it's coming around, it's it's slowly developing, but I think there's still a long way to go there. And this also has to do with sort of a, a lot of people's criticisms with uh, Chinese education is that uh, they don't develop this sort of critical thinking style of education that we have in the West. And in, in the West, if your teacher says something, you're you're almost encouraged to question that statement and then make sure it's true and investigate that truth for yourself. And even within the Baha'i faith, the in, independent investigation of truth is a really, it, it's something that's taught to us as, as a sort of our responsibility as, as a human being to investigate all truths so that we really understand their, their meaning and whether or not they're true for, for the world and for ourselves. Uh, but in, in China, the education system is done in such a way that there's not this aspect of creative thinking. When you're taught something in school in China, you're expected to to completely accept that as the reality. And so a lot of times, I, I taught in a university for about a year or two in China. You know, sometimes the book was wrong about 
uh, something that there was some English in the book that was incorrect or some things that are written not accurately in the book. And I would tell students, well, okay, the book is wrong here. And it would, it's almost like you told them that the world is actually flat or something. It's completely out of their realm of comprehension that the book would be wrong or that a teacher made a mistake or that, that something incorrect was said. And so I think there's still a lot of work that can be done in this sort of area of not necessarily questioning authority, but in being aware of that everything you're being told is not necessarily the absolute truth. There's lots of sort of variations on truth, depending on who you talk to and their opinions. So in this area, I think uh, there's still some work to be done in China. Now, Mark, is there a Baha'i community in China? Not in the same way that you would see it outside of China. The the Baha'is are required to follow the the laws of whatever country they they live within. And so within China, there's um, very specific rules and laws regarding uh, religious uh, congregation and religious administration. So outside of China, most countries will have a local spiritual assembly, as I mentioned before. There might be some regional councils for, for helping different aspects of society or, or, or culture or, or whatever. Uh, and then there's the National Spiritual Assembly, uh, which is sort of a governing body for Baha'is within that country. But in China, there is no administration. There's no LSAs. There's no NSAs to administer the Baha'is within the country. And there's also no specific congregation of Baha'is. And, and this is done because the governing body for all Baha'is of the world is the Universal House of Justice, which is located in Haifa, Israel. And they're sort of the overall governing body for all Baha'is. So in order to comply with the Chinese requirements for religious practice in, in within that country, they've requested that there not be this administrative order set up within China. So it's it's different in this respect. And, and it's interesting because this sort of has a positive and a negative result. Uh, I think the positive result is that a lot more people within China feel more sort of individually empowered to take on the mantle of what it means to be a Baha'i, to help society, to help people, to eliminate prejudice, to promote equality. All of these things that are, you know, teachings within the Baha'i faith are given sort of more of an individual feeling of empowerment within China, at least that I've noticed. Whereas outside of China, a lot of people rely much more on the, institution, on the institutions of the Baha'i faith, such as the local spiritual assemblies or national spiritual assemblies. And so there isn't as strong of an individual push for activity or initiative that I see in China. But on the other side of the coin, the sort of the negative side is that uh, there's also a little less organization about uh, what's going on or, or what's happening in the community. So uh, it's, it's sort of a, you know, it's a good news, bad news sort of situation, I think. So this time that you were describing, you were in China and sometimes in Japan and so on, did you return to the States after that stint? When I first moved to China, I came back maybe once or twice, three times a year to visit family and friends. Uh, when I moved to Hong Kong, that technically is sort of, it's part of China, but it's not part of China. The, the China is responsible for Hong Kong's uh, national defense and foreign policy. But aside from that, it's pretty much not part of China. They, they have their own financial setup, their own currency, their own local political environment. So it's it's very different. And it's even within Hong Kong, they have their own national spiritual assembly, which is not related to uh, what the Baha'is within China do. So it's it's, a, it's pretty much within the Baha'i community-wise, it's a, it's a different location, a different country. So in that respect, I felt like I was kind of out of China for two years, even though it was sort of part of China. And I would go to China uh, at least once a month just to visit friends or to, to go up there. 
and then the four years in Xi'an. Uh, between Hong Kong and Xi'an, I spent about six months, and I left the country, and I went back to the U.S. to visit family and travel around a bit and sort of uh, just uh, reconnect with my home country and my, my friends there. And at that time, I also got married. And my wife at that time was living in China. She'd actually been there for, at that time, about nine or ten years, living in the city of Xi'an. And so around 2008, I was also thinking about where I would move to next, and I decided to move to China, but I hadn't come up with a specific city I wanted to move to yet. And I had been to Xi'an before, and I liked it a lot, so I decided after we got married that I wanted to go and live there with her. And so we lived in Xi'an for about four years. During that time, I probably came back to the U.S. maybe average of once a year I left the country. I'd go to Hong Kong sometimes for a visa run or something, but for the most part, I'd stayed within Xi'an. And you support yourself with web design work? Yeah, so um, uh, in 2005, as I said, I went to Shanghai to work for Jet, and I worked for him for two years. In 2007, with some of my old business partners from Rotten Tomatoes, we started a company in, in Hong Kong, so I worked there for two years with them on that. And after I left that company, I decided to start freelancing as a designer. And so I started, I, one of the reasons I went back to the U.S. was also to build up my freelancing clientele. And so I started to work for some clients in the U.S. And I also got some clients in Hong Kong and in China. And when I moved to Xi'an, the first year or two, I was pretty much primarily doing freelance web design work. Uh, then I taught at the university for a year or so. But since that time, I've pretty much been doing freelance design for most of, most of the time, which is what I do today. Where would you say your residence is now? Is it China or is it the U.S.? Yeah, so that's a, it's we're kind of because <laughs> this is a good question. We're kind of in transition. So, at the end of July of 2013, this year, we actually officially have left China, and right now we're in. I'm currently in Austin, Texas. Uh, I, I spent about three, two or three weeks in the Seattle area, in Spokane, visiting my mother and friends there. And then I met my wife here who came here directly from Xi'an, and we're here in Austin for about a month. And then after Austin, we're going to go to the Ireland and Scotland for a little while for some traveling with family. Then I'll go to L.A. to visit my father. But our eventual location where we're going to end up and relocate to in October is the island of Molokai in Hawaii. So we'll be there for at least a year. And then from that point forward, we haven't decided where we're going to go after that. So what were the circumstances that you initiated a relocation from China? Well, there's a few things. One is that it felt like being Baha'is in China, we're, we're trying to help the lo local friends and local activities there to help develop whatever the community needs. It felt like at that time that our efforts, at least at this time, our efforts are not necessarily needed as strongly as they were before. Not to say that there isn't a need for people to provide service in China. Of course, there definitely is. But within our community and our friends, we felt like it was a good time to explore other options. My wife had been there for 12 years. I've been there for eight years. And so we both felt like we wanted to go somewhere else where we could also be of service to the community. So uh, we had a request 2010 when we visited Hawaii. Uh, some of the, the local native Hawaiian Baha'is asked us if we could come and, and help with some of their efforts there. And so we took that opportunity to uh, relocate to Hawaii. Well, it's fortunate you have a occupation that really allows you to be able to work just about anywhere. I think one of the biggest blessings in my life is that I have this sort of location-independent lifestyle where I'm able to travel wherever I need to be to do whatever I need to do. So it's it's very fortunate. So you said you're gonna you're going to Hawaii and you're gonna you you mentioned something about being there a year. Yeah. So our current plan is to live in Hawaii for one year, the minimum of one year. 
And at that time, sort of towards the end of that year, we'll, we'll sort of reevaluate and see what we want to do. Our, our general feeling, our, our general policy with where we go and what we do is that we want to be in a place that we're able to be of service to people. And since I, I have this opportunity to pretty much travel wherever we want to go with my work, we're very flexible in how we interpret that uh, service. So whether it's going to another country to provide service there or whether it's somewhere in the U.S. or uh, we're very flexible. And so we, we sort of like to keep our, our eyes open and our, and our mind open and see what opportunities present themselves to us. And we try not to dictate too specifically like we want to do this in this year and that in that year and this is our plan going forward. But we sort of sort of see what you know God has in store for us and, and what sort of messages he sends to us and, and what he thinks that might be a good path for us to follow. And, and we sort of make our decisions prayerfully and, and think, uh, meditate intentionally about what the best path moving forward is for, for us and, our, and how we can help other people. And Mark, do you have children? We do not have children, which probably makes this whole process a little easier. Because <laughs> I imagine having children makes it more difficult. Uh, and, it's, and it's definitely something that we sort of have a plan for in the future. But I think even having children, and I say this now because I have none, so I have obviously have no idea what it entails. But I think even with having children, we still would like to pursue this life of flexible service to wherever we need to be. So, And I think our own feeling about raising a child is that we want them to have a, a feeling that they're a member of the global community or global family. And so we don't want them to necessarily associate themselves with, well, I'm this kind of person, or I'm from this location, or I'm just have this belief structure, I have this culture, but we want them to feel like they're a member of the entire human race and that all cultures and all cultural arts and all cultural beliefs are a part of their identity as well because uh, they're a member of humanity, they're a member of society. And so I think we'll sort of carry on that feeling when we have children and when we're moving around that, you know, a lot of our friends have said, you know, don't you want to have something stable where you're just in one place and you can raise your child and they can have friends and you know, this kind of situation, which I think is a very common feeling for a lot of people, especially a lot of my friends feel that way. But I feel like it's, I don't want to limit my child or limit my child's experiences or limit my child's understanding of people to only have them experience one location. And I feel like when my own childhood, when I was growing up, having this sort of dual cultural relationship with Japan, going there every summer when I was a kid, and then being in the U.S. as well, having this perspective really opened me up and, and helped me appreciate people from everywhere much more. And my wife also had a similar situation. She lived in Brazil for three years when she was younger as well. Her family went there to provide service in, on the, in the Amazon. So I think both of us sort of come from this place where living internationally and being abroad as we when we were younger had such a positive impact on our worldview that we want to be able to help whatever children we have also attain this sort of worldview understanding. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Mark Moran, a freelance web designer whose spiritual journey included the study of Wushu and his work with the actor Jet Li. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time 
on a Baha'i perspective. If I had closed my mouth and opened my eyes, if I had cooled my head and warmed my heart, I'd not be on this road tonight.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.